Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So? A show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sokka's Is That So? On today's episode, we will be talking about being an entrepreneur in an academic background. This is a very interesting topic and we'll be speaking to a good pal of mine named Babajide Macaulay Milton. Um, I'm not quite sure what the abbreviation of that is, but that's what he goes by. You have a good time looking that up on LinkedIn or Facebook. But with that said, let's get right into it. So why did I think of this topic? Well, we all go through the formal landscape of academic ed education. But from that point onwards, you go into the real world and perhaps the academic background that you've come from doesn't necessarily lend itself to being an entrepreneur or actually understanding what it's like to build a professional career. More importantly as well, I thought about the experience of being a graduate student. And, you know, most graduate schools are very business oriented. So you can think of MBAs and things like that, or they're very academic or research oriented, should I say. But both of those two things, I wonder to myself, that experience, does it help you become an entrepreneur? What are the barriers? What are the barricades that it presents or even the opportunities? So that's what we'll be discussing a bit later on. But first and foremost, let's understand something. Do academics or does the academic environment have an interest in promoting entrepreneurship? Well, in some capacities, yes, because if you look at the reports of some of the best MBA schools, be it Oxford, Stanford, or any of these institutions, those that have professional degrees that are tailored for industry, they pride themselves a lot on showing entrepreneurship numbers. And I guess that's for a few different reasons, but primarily entrepreneurs are those that will go on to create businesses which will ultimately employ people. And these types of businesses will end up with, you know, very rich founders and these, they can always give back to the universities that they went to. So that's one potential um, uh, route, should I say, or, or avenue for funding for academic institutions. So it's in their best interest to encourage some sort of entrepreneurship, even though most people that do professional degrees end up going into either consulting or into banking and things like that. But entrepreneurship is becoming even more important, especially given the ecosystems that we are in. If you really think of the technology space and where most of these good schools are located, there's a lot of venture capital available in those areas. And so when you have venture capitalists plus smart people, naturally that money wants to flow to those smart people. And most of those smart people are in the academic institutions in those specific locations. So that's number one. Number two, do you have to have time in order to start a venture while being a student? Well, you'd think that as a graduate student, or even any kind of student at all, you'd have a lot more free time compared to a professional. Now, really, I believe this is a fallacy. When I did my master's, it was a very intense nine month to 10 month course. In fact, they explicitly said you should not, in fact, cannot, I believe was the phrase, take another job while you are working or should I say part of this academic program. Now, 
The program was very intense, nine to five sort of, especially with homework on the weekends and things like that. So it was really tough to actually do something else on the side. Now, whether you're doing a five-year PhD or a one-year intense master's like I did, you don't have as much free time as you think you do because even though you're only going to classes for 15 hours, 16 hours a week, the homework that takes up all the other bulk of your time ends up eating into the sort of free time that you'd have as a student, socializing and all those types of things in order to be able to start a venture. Now, the good or the beneficial part of this is the fact that your time is flexible. So you can decide to, you know, use the afternoon because you don't have classes to actually call businesses and get whatever venture you want to, to, to see come into the world off the ground because most people that work nine to five don't have that opportunity or that luxury. So when it comes to starting a venture while being a student, I think you have the flexibility of time, but not necessarily the luxury of added or more time. That's probably a fallacy, but we'll talk about that a bit later. The next thing we'd like to discover or to challenge, do the opportunities present themselves in academic environments for people to use the research to start new companies? Now, if you go back historically, a lot of the biggest companies, tech companies and otherwise, have been founded based on research that has been done at academic institutions, be it Stanford, be it Berkeley, things like Google, autonomous driving, all types of new and innovative ideas have been founded in these institutions. Now, typically, what happens is the academic institution that's undergoing this research um, would like to monetize or commercialize this research. If not, it just sits on a, uh, on a shelf somewhere and no one actually gets to use it. So there is a sort of marriage between the two whereby there are either accelerator programs or there's some sort of royalty whereby the university gets a percentage of the fees that happens afterwards or once the, the product actually goes to commercialization. So there is a sort of marriage between the two and ultimately it's in either side's best interest. Companies don't have to invest that much in R&D because they can just work on a sponsored project that the academic institution is working on, at least perhaps at a cheaper rate because we all know students don't make that much. And vice versa, the academic institution gets to monetize their actual academic research. So it's not a case that you won't have the ability to use that research unless it is uh, restricted in some capacity or it's government uh, mandated or something like that. Then you have a bit of, of, of a restriction, should I say. But for the most part, I'd say that being a student and trying to be an entrepreneur does lend itself to you seeing things and having access to information that most people don't have, be it libraries or different types of research. Another thing that I'd like to challenge or at least think about from the outside looking in, being an academic is pretty rigid, right? You go from one level to the next, you take an exam this quarter, next quarter, this semester, whatever it is, it's a very rigid structure. And when you're trying to be an entrepreneur or start something new, Really, you have to think outside the box. You have to have street smarts. You have to be a bit flexible. So does that rigidity of being a student not help you actually in, in terms of being an entrepreneur because you're so used to this rigid structure? And I personally have been part of, or should I say, have fallen prey to this problem myself because when something is graded for you, when something is predefined for you, you follow the steps and there's a logical progression. You see that, you know, you're able to do this type of problem then the next type of problem, but it's all laid out for you. And when it comes to starting a business, you can sometimes take two steps back to take a step forward. You know, you try things and they, they don't work, work out and they fail. And the academic environment doesn't necessarily lend itself to you failing, right? When you make a mistake, yeah, you learn, but you pay for that pretty heavily because you have to wait for the next semester 
Um, and also, you know, you fail classes in order to, you know, be able to move on to the next stage. In entrepreneurship, yeah, you might lose money. Don't get me wrong. That's a pretty painful thing in its, in its entirety or in its own as well. But it's not as bad because you're trying new things and you're learning along the way. And ultimately, it depends on how fast you're able to learn or to bounce back from that failure. You don't have to wait and you're not so uh, short, chastised, should I say. So those are some of the reasons why I think the rigidity of academics or being in the academic environment doesn't lend itself to being an entrepreneur or actually being willing to fail. Another thing is, let's look at risk, right? Academics don't want to take that much risk. Whether you're a graduate student or not, risk is sort of confined. You're expected to toe the line. Meanwhile, being an entrepreneur, it's pretty much all about risk, right? How, how much are you willing to lose in order to gain something? Being street smart is something that I alluded to earlier on, but being street smart is more about being able to negotiate with people, understanding psychology, um, you know, knowing how to maneuver in certain environments, whether that's networking and, you know, all those types of things. That is not necessarily as important in, in the academic world and academia. And I personally, um, you know, state that I am more of an academic type and I've ha had to try and change my perspective or to slant towards being more street smart. Uh, because of my success in the academic world, I thought that that was the right way to always do things. But as I've become more conscious of being an entrepreneur or taking more risks and you know investing and all those types of things, I've had to become more street smart because I wanna be successful in that realm of uh, society or in that uh, type of endeavor going forward. So those are some of the things that we think on the, on the outset, but there are some benefits to being an academic uh, you know, you build resilience and you're able to stick with something for a long time, with one particular tough problem for a long time. And that does help you be an entrepreneur. The ability to stick with something for three years and be consistent is often, if not the most valuable thing in being an entrepreneur, above the money, above, um, well, I don't know about connections because we live in a very connections-oriented world. But that ability to be resilient is definitely something that academics can use in their entrepreneurial endeavors. And also the ability to multitask. I remember when I was a student, I was working on chemistry and then I'd be working on physics and math and English and all different subjects. And it requires a switch of mode, uh, a different way of thinking between those. And it allows you to develop that multitasking mindset and that apparatus in your actual uh, entrepreneurial endeavor. When you translate that into the entrepreneurial world or in starting a business or whatever it is, you know, you have to manage your CRM, which is your customer relationship management system. You have to balance sales. You have to look at the regulatory environment to see what's happening. And oftentimes being a researcher or coming up with a thesis or PhD or whatever it is, you have to look at a problem from multiple different angles. So you, you sort of have to coddle that balancing act. And I think that definitely helps itself or lends itself in the entrepreneurship realm. Last but not least, we'd like to talk a little bit about being an international student. I myself, uh, I myself was an international student when I was in the United States of America. And I know that you're always thinking about, man, how am I going to get a visa? How am I going to be able to stay in the country? What kind of jobs am I restricted to? And we know that most, in fact, I believe it was something about, above 80% of graduate students in the U.S. are international. And if you don't have these people, or if you don't offer these people the flexibility to start businesses after they graduate, then really you're just wasting that brain power because ultimately academic research is only useful if you can apply it in the real world. And that's what entrepreneurship is. It's the application of knowledge into the real world in order to help people, uh, whether it's a service or a product and things like that. So I think that the 
situation right now whereby we restrict academics, specifically international students, from using their knowledge or their research to make societies better, to found companies that ultimately employ people and things like that, is probably not the best system or way to go about it. But that's what I think of the topic. We're having a chat with Babajide, as we said, and let's hear what his thoughts are. Hi, Babajide, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. No problem. So, in your experience, why do you think most people think that they're academic people and they are entrepreneurs? And those two things do not coincide into one. I think it's because of the general notion that people have about academics. They feel that academics are bookish, they're bookworms, they just follow the theories in class. And we all know that the theories you learn in the classroom often fail in the real world. And so the reason why there is a general perception about academics not surviving when it comes to entrepreneurship is because entrepreneurship is very practical. You have the market, you have, you need to have a real deep business sense, financial in- intelligence. So it's beyond just what you learn in the classroom. And that's the reason why you often hear people say you can be book smart, but not street smart. So entrepreneurs are street smart because that's the only way you're going to be able to access the resources in people's pocket so that they can pay that into your bank account. Because you have to be smart and you have to, I would say, provide a solution to a problem. And the only way you do that is through a practical means. But for academics, they are often just by the books. They do things according to the principles, the theories. And as a result, there's a general perception that they're not going to thrive in the business world. And I guess that's the reason why most people do not like to put both of them in the same box. They would say, no, it's either you are an academic where you teach the principle or you are an entrepreneur where you apply the principle in the real world, including your street smartness and every other skill sets you're able to um, grab from the streets, as they always say. (laughs) And then that makes you a well-rounded financial person who would survive, you know, in the business world. And that's why the two of them do not always meet. But I think it's just, it's a myth, actually, because that we that you would not find an individual who is succeeding in both doesn't mean it's impossible to achieve. The only thing is that there's a kind of truth in it because you don't have a lot of academics go into the business world. So there is a kind of truth in it. But at the same time, I do not think it's impossible to have someone who sits at the, uh, what is it called? The, the intersect of both. You do not, you, it's not impossible to find someone who would sit at the intersect of both. And that's where I think I thrive both. Um, okay. Let me just wait and stop there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. So what do you think the difference is between someone that is book smart and someone that is street smart is? Someone who is book smart, uh, just from the description of that, that someone who is studious, he pays attention to instruction. He's, he will not risk anything. Someone who is street smart will not live by the rules. 
Why do you think people do well in class? They do well in class because they follow instructions. The instruction says, answer three questions. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They answer three questions and it tells them 300 words per question and they go at it. But you see, so these guys are so good at paying attention to instructions and that's it. So when they get to the real world, they discover that instructions <laughs> won't save them because at that point in time, you need to be able to reason on your own. Critical thinking. You do not need anyone to give you a guidance, a guide, instructions to tell you what to do. At that point, you need to be able to figure out what to do on the spot. And so at that point in time, there will be no rules. So people who are not afraid, who are not afraid to risk everything, to take risks, they are the ones who end up doing so well in the real world. And that's being street smart. Being street smart is for you to, first of all, understand that there are no rules. It's like a jungle. There are no rules here. You're on your own. You have to think faster than your peers. You, and at that point in time, your intelligence alone will not save you because you're going to need grit. You're going to need grit. You're going to need all other kind of um, life-saving techniques <laughs> to ensure that you don't get eaten up in the jungle. And that's the difference between being book smart, who is someone who tends to stick to rules, and being street smart, who is someone who doesn't care about the rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. And to have both of those in one person is very rare and oh, unique. Yeah. Now, going on to a bit of the graduate student portion of things and the research, uh, there are some of the world's best companies that have come out of the research that has done at universities uh, that have formed some of the biggest companies in the world. So Google and XYZ, you can name them. What facilities are in place for people to actually use that research to create a company because when I think about it the myth on the outside is that you know the university doesn't really try and foster innovation that the person maybe has to steal the trade secret and then go start their <laughs> own company do do company do universities help and guide people and encourage them to use the research to actually create companies well the truth is how it works in the developed countries like the UK the US in Canada and the likes I think it's there is a very good um, I would say collaboration between academia and the industry. And how it works is that the industry approach, they would approach the school and then they fund a project and they expect an academic to carry out the research. But then they will demand that the results shouldn't be disclosed publicly. And so after the whole thing is done, they send back um, the results, the reports and everything to the industry or the organization who funded the research. And then they go ahead and do whatever they want to do with it. Most of the time, they keep it in-house and it doesn't become um, something that is then shared to the public. And that's the problem. So eventually, you do not really know what they do with that information. And you, do, and you can't question them because before you got the money to fund this, you might, you might have gone ahead to sign a lot of legal stuff <laughs> that you're going to keep your mouth shut. And that's the point. So, but then there is still a very good collaboration between 
academia and the industry in those parts of the world. However, when you come to where I work, which is in the developing countries like Nigeria, where I work, you have a very big gap <laughs> between academia and the industry. One reason for that is because the industries here in Africa, uh, they are not as rich, I would say. They're not as rich as you have them at the other uh, parts of the world. And as a result, they have to prioritize. They have to prioritize what they do. And this is the reason why most of the companies in this part of the world, they are more focused on making profit than R&D. R&D that could probably help in developing a new product. They prefer to stay on a product that has been tested and trusted and continue to produce that than to venture and take maybe risks and venture into a new ground. They just feel it's too much risk and they do not have the money to even do that. So it's part of the reasons why you do not really see them approach the universities to solve a problem or to carry out the research. That's one. Two, um, the universities are also underfunded, heavily underfunded. And as a re result, they do not even have the basic resources to carry out some of these works. And so you have some industries in Africa that prefer to outsource these works outside the continent. You know, they go to universities abroad <laughs> to sort out the problems rather than use homegrown researchers. And that's because, not because they feel that they are not competent, but they know they do not have the resources to work with. And so that also affects the collaboration they have with industry. And as a result, what you often have is that um, academics in Africa, they tend to have to work with what they have. So the kind of research they carry out are not in-depth, you know, not in-depth enough. And as a result, you find half-baked works published here and there. And people then say, well, these guys are not doing enough. But really, the bottom line is funding. It's funding. You do nothing without funding. Come on, during my PhD in Manchester, my supervisor attracted a grant worth £500,000 to go to Cambodia to solve a problem of arsenic in groundwater. £500,000. It was given by NERC, N-E-R-C, NERC. The, I think it's Natural Environmental Research Council. And it's attached to the UK government. Uh, it's a UK-funded uh, organization. And they were able to give them £500,000. Just imagine that, to carry out the research. You don't get that where I come from. You know, you don't. <laughs> I mean, £500,000 is ridiculous. What? Yeah, it's Just quite a lot. People, especially for a lot. And that's what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah. And that's so research is funding, it's money. And unfortunately, we don't have that here. And so it's, it really affects the collaboration between the industry and academia because the industry feels that academia in this part of this world, academics are just not competent enough to do the job because they do not have the resources. And so rather than do it um, at home here, they travel abroad and give it to bigger schools with all 
I mean, the University of Manchester, their income annually is a billion pound. One billion pound. Their income annually. I don't have to tell you how much my employer <laughs> gets a year. <laughs> it's just incredibly, <laughs> it's incredibly low. <laughs> so that's exactly some of the challenges you have, you know, when you try to com- compare what's obtainable outside and here as well. So, so let's talk about your, um, your constraints and also the benefits of being a student entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, what I'm thinking of is a lot of people would say, yes, I have a lack of funding, but maybe you have more time, right? To actually, uh, you know, do your research for a couple hours a day. And then, you, you know, because you don't have a regimented nine to five, that freedom of time you have is an advantage. Uh, what would you say are some of the advantages and disadvantages of being a PhD or graduate student, um, in terms of trying to be an entrepreneur or trying to get funding and all those kinds of things, is it all doom and gloom or? Oh, damn, it can be so challenging. And the reason is this, when you're on a full-time PhD, full-time, that means you're not expected to work. And that means it requires full attention every day. You go to the office every day and there's always something to be done. So when you try to combine that with entrepreneurship, it, it becomes so difficult. You have to be extremely disciplined for you to pull that off. You have to be extremely disciplined. And in my own case, even though I started a company two years ago while I was a PhD student at the University of Manchester, what helped me was the resilience. Not everyone <laughs> can do that. One is the resilience to is the ability to multitask. Well, I sometimes think it's a natural ability, but some people have said, well, it can be taught. I don't know if it can be taught, but I feel it's natural ability because not everyone can do different things at the same time. I think most people would probably do a single thing at a, single thing at a time because um, if you do not focus, because some people, then, you know, they lose track of what they're doing or they have a very short attention span they can't, once they focus on A, they can't focus on B. You know, it has to be A all through. But for you to do both and not, um, have a problem with either one, that means you have a natural ability to multitask. And I think if you have that, then it helps. Um, but it's really, really challenging to combine both. Because one, your primary assignment is the PhD or whatever thing you're doing. That's the primary assignment. And then on the side, you have the business that you're trying to run. That is equally important to you. But at the same time, being able to prioritize too is important. Being able to prioritize is so important. And um, for me, how I was able to sort things out where I categorized the tasks. So I would say, okay, I need to do this first. And this has to do with my research work after I'm done I still have a spare time of three hours here I'm going to try to do something about my company and then I go back again to research so it's just trying to find free available space where you can then go on to build your business you have to find free available space because you always find space you're not going to be working 24 hours a day. It's not possible. So the free available space you've got, that's where you're going to have to dump your business 
tasks in there in order to make sure that both thrive. But another problem people have is they do not manage their time well. And so most of the time you hear them say things like, well, all the time is gone. I didn't have time. I just don't have the time. But if you look inward and you check out how you have spent 24 hours in a day, you discover that there's so many things that could have been taken out so that you can have time to build your business. And so I think the bottom line is time management, resilience, and the ability to multitask, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what opportunities presented themselves to you um, as a graduate student or your peers? Were there a lot of job opportunities or was entrepreneurship a, uh, not, not necessarily a calling, but something that you had to do because there was a lack of opportunities in terms of the job market or things like that? How would you characterize that? Well, in my own case, it's different because I had a job even before I started the PhD. I had a job already. I was very lucky because I graduated as one of the best in my class. And as a result, I was offered this job to become a lecturer, and I took it. And so I had a job even before I started the PhD. So I was on study leave. Uh, um, so I didn't really have to look for you know, a side hustle or a business. I didn't really have to. In fact, I was paid in, in absentia. So even though I was having my PhD in the UK, and my employer was in Nigeria, I was still paid my salary every month. Um, so I didn't really have to do that. I will call myself an accidental entrepreneur. And the reason is because there was something I usually do just for the passion of it. And that I have been someone who has won scholarships for almost everything from bachelor's to master's and as well my PhD. And I know that there's a huge demand, especially from those of us who live in the in developing worlds, to have a master's and PhD in the developed world. But because we cannot afford to pay for it, then we look out for scholarship, fully funded scholarship. And so I started out by helping people. I'll put them through since I have won seven in my lifetime. I, I started putting people through, oh, this is how you go about it. This is how you do it. And a lot of people began to win scholarships as well. It was like I had the magic wand to like, you can do this. And this is the technique. This is what you do. And everyone was just winning, 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 winning. And so in July, I think July 5th, 2017, my friends and I went for a trip to Spain in Barcelona specifically. And that was when I was told by my friends that, you know what? You can't continue to do this for free. <laughs> there is a market here around this because there's a huge demand. There is a market here and I think it's profitable. You can't continue to do this for free. You need to make people pay. It's a service you're rendering and you need to commercialize it. And because I was coming from an academic background, I couldn't see it. And you see the reason why I told you that the academic people are just so hell-bent on the theories and in the pages of a book. They won't see opportunities in the real world, even if it's staring at them. They, you probably need someone on the streets to explain it to them. In my own case, I was lucky and blessed. I had friends who were able to open my eyes to, to this. And so they told me that you shouldn't keep doing this for free. You need to commercialize it. And so I took the advice. I went home and I started thinking of 
a company name. <laughs> and that's how I stumbled into becoming an entrepreneur, just like that. And before I knew I was going to, it's two years down the line. And I have, and then, and then another thing is the model, the business model is one that works perfectly because I have consultants who work. So when you approach us that there is a scholarship you want to apply for and you want us to review your scholarship form, I do not have to be the one to do it. For example, if there are a lot of you, that means I can handle everybody's job. And so I had to get consultants. And so once I spread it through each of the consultants that I have, the consultants get paid off um, the amount paid by the client. So they get a, per a percentage of the total paid by the client. And that automatically means if there is no request, nobody gets paid. And that means I owe nobody. So I do not have to go in debt just because I run a company. They only get paid when there is a customer, when there is a client. So the model works so perfectly. doesn't have to leave me in debt because I know some other businesses where you have to continuously pay the clients. Uh, sorry, you continuously pay your staff or the consultant. Whether they are customers or not, you have to pay. And so you run the risk of being in debt or not being able to cope or closing down your company the moment you have customer drought, you, you know. And so, but in my own case, if there is no one coming through, I owe no, nobody, nothing. <laughs> but if we've got clients, then yes, we give you a percentage off and that's it. So it was just a very convenient business model to work with. Yeah, it's, it's really great because it sounds like you found a problem and you were solving it without even realizing it, realizing it was a business. Exactly. And so I think that that mindset of solving problems first, as opposed to trying to create a business first, is the right way to go about it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Clearly. And, you know, most people, what they do is they tell people, oh, I've got a business idea and I think it's going to fly. But you need to test it first. Because you'll be shocked. That's the thing about entrepreneurship. It's practical. You have to test it on ground. It's not something that lives in your head. You can't say, I've thought about it. I know they're going to buy my product. I'm, I'm sure they're going to use my service. No, it's in your head. You're not sure if people really want the service you're rendering. You're not sure if people will leave other service providers and come to you. There must be something extra you're giving that would make them leave an already existing service provider. So it's deeper than just saying, I have a business idea and I'm certain I'm sure it's going to fly. You have to test it first. In my own case, I didn't have to do that because it was tested. It's been tested. In fact, it was being tested already before I commercialized it. So it was working. The only thing I did was to ensure that people then pay for the service now. And that was the only thing I did, yeah. So how, how did you go about learning these things like commercialization or marketing and all these things? Those are not simple things to do. And on the outset, you know, the myth here is you would need to hire staff to do this yeah, for you yeah. or it takes a lot of energy. How did you go about doing those things, the marketing, the commercializing, all that? That's a very, that's a very good question because <laughs> I knew nothing about running a business. I didn't know anything about the markets. I didn't know anything about, you know, you know, you have to check out the trends. I didn't know anything about that. So what did I do? That's why it's good to have a very good network. So I reached out into my professional network. 
and I found these financial guys. In fact, one of them works with a financial company, BDO, in London right now. That's where he actually works. But he's a good friend of mine. And I reached out to him and I said, look, I'm trying to build this. He drafted everything around the model, the letters we should send to the consultants, the content, how we should frame it. Um, you know, he just worked out everything. So it was like, I'm the guy who has the skill set. He's the brain who brings in the financial structure to make sure everything works in business. But then the skill set, the service itself, I give that off. But he then provides the architecture, the structure for it to move on in business. And so I needed him. He was like my <laughs> shadow. <laughs> he followed me everywhere. I just needed him everywhere. So the business kicked off successfully because I had such a person on my team. And I think it is good to quickly tell yourself the truth if you know you need help. <laughs> if you know you need help, if you know you need support, it's good to come to terms with the truth and get the needed help or else you're going to start a business and it's going to die. It's not going to die because um, there is no demand for it. It's going to die because you did not put up a proper structure for it to thrive. Eventually, it's going to die because you need to make profits and you need to ensure that your profit is growing every year. So you need someone with that business sense to ensure that you guys are not spending too much and then you have a model that works so that you don't go into debt. That's the key thing, debt. The moment you start a business, there is a teething period where you're not going to make anything or you're just going to be making scraps, just crumbs. But then if your model is good, it's not, it's not really going to have any adverse effect on you. You're still going to grow. And in time, within a year or two, you start working. You know, you know, you begin to crawl at first, but afterwards you, you, you begin to work. But that's because you have a good team. So it's good to know where you are deficient and then you find appropriate guys, you know, to cover the, the gaps. So what were some of the biggest mistakes you made along the way and how did you know or make that ruthless decision of we need to pivot or we need to change this, this you know, because it's not working, whether it was a market segment or a product or anything like that? Okay, so the first thing, the first problem we had was the problem of trust. <laughs> now, I started the company as an online educational consulting firm. So we do not have a physical office building. Everything is online. So we had serious, and then my market is the developing country because they're the ones that get the scholarships, you know, to study in the developed world. Now, the problem is when I was in the UK, the clients I had in the UK didn't have a problem going online, using the service and paying with their cards online because they're used to doing this almost every day for almost everything they do, right? But when you come to a developing country, they're scared to use their cards online because there are loads of issues with um, fraud and all kinds. So we had serious trust issues. You hear people go, are you sure I can use my card? No, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm not sure I can. And that's it. And they're not going to use it. And they're so scared. That's one. Two, the question I often get is, okay, so where is your office? I want to know where your office is. And you know why they're asking that? So that if things go south, they know how to trace you guys. 
<laughs> but then when I start saying things like, well, we do not have a physical office building. It's online. They just go, okay, thank you for your time. <laughs> and they disappear. <laughs> so I had serious problems trying to convince people. And how did I solve that? Actually, I didn't. It solved itself. How? I just continued to do my stuff. And then people started winning. A few people decided to try us out. A few. And they won. Now, in the business that I run, performance would drive patronage. And so we stay performing so well. Lots of people we helped stay winning scholarship. And then we started publicizing their names and that the fact that they've traveled abroad, they're now in this country, they're now in that country. People stay seeing it as they're coming. The trust stay getting built up gradually. And then they said, okay, let's try him out. Let's, let's try him out. And then 10 people became 50, 50, 100, 100, 250, you know. So it started working itself out just on its own because of performance, because people started winning. Then what now <laughs> made everything where we then eventually, I would say, break even was when I got invited by the British Council in Nigeria. And so suddenly I just got invited by the British Council. And the reason was this. <laughs> I got the Commonwealth Scholarship twice for my master's and PhD. And it's so difficult to win even once. And so the British Council, was they were organizing um, something called a study in the UK fair. They do it every year. And so they were doing it last year. And they needed a segment. They created a segment to discuss UK scholarship. And they started trying to find out who they can invite a young guy who has won scholarships. And somehow my name just got popped out somewhere. This guy was one and he's helping people. In fact, he's built a business. And that's how I got invited. Now, I got there and you need to sit, you know, 600 guests were seated and I delivered. They loved what I did. And then they put up a thank you graphic image of me on their webpage. Now, what I did as a smart guy, <laughs> you have to be street smart, was I took, you know, a screenshot of that. And I put it all over my company page and as well as my page. And suddenly, the patronage just went from 250 to 500. Wow. So, what, what that means is social trust. Um, you see, the, it's social capital and public trust. Now, these two things got built up because I was, I was associated with an organization that is established and respected. So, sometimes... You just need recognition from the right organization. And that's it. Once they recognize you, they call you over for something, they, they showcase you to the world, oh, that you're doing this stuff and we know you're doing it well. You're going to sort out the issues of public trust. And so today in 2020, <laughs> I do not need to beg anyone. 2018, when I started, you see me say, no, please, you can try yourself. But right now, now I'm just swagging everywhere and just putting up my swagger. <laughs> you come to me and I just tell you, do you know, do you really want to do this job? If you don't want to do it, it's fine. You know? <laughs> and they go, please, I really want you guys to help me out. I really want you guys to help me. <laughs> so it's changed in two years and it's just unbelievable how that has changed. 
No, that's great to hear. Uh, you know, the social capital is immensely important. I myself as an entrepreneur, I try and associate myself with the right people because all you need is that one endorsement. Maybe it's the BBC or, you know, some institution and it, it fires your career. Yeah. And that's it. And that's it. And that's the, the beginning of everything. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about building a team. And this is probably the last few points that we'll get into, but building that team to be successful. How did you go about doing that? You mentioned network was very important. You hire these consultants on a freelance basis. How do you go about either screening them, um, you know, networking with them, making those associations to ensure your business is successful? Okay, so I leveraged on social media. <laughs> now, I'm very active on social media, uh, especially LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, although I'm not very active on Twitter because there's savages in there. <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then uh, I'm very active across all the social media platforms. So what I started doing was I started watching out professionals. I started watching out for professionals that are in the space that I intend to be in. And so I still see them doing stuff. I see guys reviewing people's CVs. I see some people talking about how to help you with scholarships. I still watching people. And eventually, when it was time, I went up to these guys and I said, I'm starting up a company. I would like you to be a consultant on my team. I hope you don't mind. And they agreed. And that's because I have been doing the same stuff on my own platform. And so they saw, I would say, a peer of theirs, someone just like them, I would say a co-mentor just like them, and who is coming up to them and saying, guys, do you know what? Collaboration is better than competition. Let's just pull our resources together and try to make this work. Also, they saw the fact that I had built a website, and the website was so professionally done, it cost me a lot of money, I must tell you. And so, but these guys have just been doing it for fun. That was where I was some years ago. <laughs> so they were doing it for fun, but I was letting them know, guys, I've left that space. I'm now here making money off it. And I have a platform already. I just need you guys to join me. And it was so easy. The moment they visited the website, they were like, wow, this is cool. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> so I recruited by watching them for a while. I didn't have to do an interview. I knew they, they were good. <laughs> I knew they were good because I watched them for a while. And that was how I was able to recruit them, convince them without much stress because they had been seeing my work as well. And so, and they saw what I had built up and they just felt, well, rather than try to spend some money and build, build mine, let me join this guy who has built his. Well, it's win-win. It's win-win for everyone. And that was how I was able to attract them. I think that's a great point. You know, sometimes I've, or at times I've heard that saying, build it and they will come. And it sounds like you built a great product and yeah. it enticed not just customers, but even collaborators who could have been your competition. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, so the, the last point here is, uh, Illumania, just a quick one or two minutes about it, how people can find out about it to go there and subscribe and all that. Okay, so Illumania is an online educational consulting firm. Um, it was established in January 2018. So we've literally spent two years and a half building this firm. Um, so it was established because we discovered that there are lots of educational support still needed by students, graduates, and even professionals. And so some of the services we render include dissertation writing support, 
We're not going to write it for you because <laughs> we feel it's unethical, it's illegal, it's unprofessional. But if you have a problem where your supervisor is so busy, he doesn't have time to look at your work, and you're not confident of what you have done, you can bring your draft to us, we review, and we tell you what you need to change or what you need to fix it to make it really good for you to have a distinction grade. Now, don't worry about the, the discipline because I have consultants across almost every discipline. So we have the right person for your field or your discipline. Then another thing we do is coursework writing supervision. Now, we also do that for people who are doing their master's or bachelor's and they're given coursework essay. You know, the essays that you're given to write 3,000 words, 2,500 words, and so on. But you're not confident about your write-up. You don't know if it's good enough, if you've addressed the question. You can send a draft to us, we review, and we send it back to you at a small fee. Very, very small fee. Affordable. <laughs> and then <laughs> CV restructuring. So some of you who have just graduated from school, but um, you're not sure if the format, the structure of the CV looks good enough to be um, attractive, you know, to be attractive to a company of choice, you can submit your CV to us and then we review, we remove certain parts we feel is unnecessary, we, add in, we advise you to add in certain things that will put your best foot forward and then also, we do this depending on the sector because the requirements change per sector. So we know yeah. our onions. We know what we do anyway. <laughs> then, I love that. Um, personal statement review. Now, for some people who are applying for scholarships and you're told to write a personal statement or 500 words, you can send a draft to us. We review and people have won scholarship. Now, there's another one we do. In case you want us to review your entire form. That's the entire scholarship application form, not just the personal statement. Let's assume that the number of scholarship essays, the number of scholarship essays, maybe up to 10 or five of them, and you want us to review them for you. That means you submit your entire form. The service is called scholarship application guiding. So that is different from the personal statement, which is just a mm. single essay. Now, if you want us to review the entire form, you can also send us um, a draft of that and we review everything. There are people who have won scholarships on a team, so they're going to use their wealth of experience to review your work and then let you know what you need to say about yourself that will be attractive to the scholarship sponsor. And we also do career counseling, data analysis, and a host of other stuff. Um, so, But if you go to our website, www.illumania.org www.illumania.org You're going to see all the services. There are nine of them. All the services that we offer. And you can also send us an email on admin at illumania.org admin at illumania.org that's fantastic that sounds good thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much 